Welcome to Radio Cosen, a brand new podcast from Billcasters. Radio Cosen is a podcast that focuses on Ultraman, Kaiju, and lesser-known tokusatsu. I'm Ultraman Ash, also known as Macabre Chap, and I'm joined by... It's Ultraman Pre! <laughs> so today, on episode zero, yes, episode zero of Radio Cosen, episode one will actually be a review of an Ultraman series, we are going to review Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the 2019 entry into the Godzilla franchise from Legendary Pictures. Pre, first things first, what did you think of it? Of the movie itself, um, for as much as I love Ultraman, I'm a relative newcomer to kaiju films in general. I pulled up the Heisei-era trilogy of Gamera last year on a whim, watched it, loved it, seen a handful of other Godzilla movies, and I'm slowly working my way through it. But I'm not like a person who has grown up with Godzilla, so I wasn't really sure what to expect from this movie, especially considering that I don't remember anything of what happened in Godzilla 2014. I did see Kong Skull Island, though, and that movie's actually pretty good. Anybody out there listening or Ash, if you haven't watched it yet, check it out. But I don't remember anything of the 2014 movie. And I think the uh, directors and writers kind of counted on that because literally nothing from the 2014 movie shows up apart from like vague references to it. And the first shot of the movie is our main uh, family, who I don't even remember their names right now. Our main family, uh, you know, looking around the destruction of San Francisco in the wake of those events and finding that their young son has been killed. And so that sets up the main focus for the human side of the movie. But nobody cares about the human side. You want me to talk about what Godzilla did in the movie. And Godzilla does a lot of things in this movie. And I'm going to go ahead and plug this now. Pretty much immediately after I got home from the movie, I went down and wrote out my thoughts on it and published a review. So if you want like a more in-depth look at it, you can check that out. But in short, I feel like there was a war between the critics and longtime fans in the wake of this movie over how people should approach it. And I think both sides in this case are right and wrong at the same time. Because the best part of this movie was far and away the giant monster fights. But at the same time, the people who are like, nobody watches Godzilla for the plot are idiots and are not helping to make their case. So I feel like a lot of the nitpicks and critiques that I heard from people who are not familiar with kaiju films and are not familiar with this style, at least not as familiar as the director of King of the Monsters, who is a giant nerd and has been talking lore stuff on Twitter constantly. I feel like the nitpicks of it overlook very key elements of what makes the franchise unique and I feel are being unfair to it in that sense. But we're also being unfair to it by saying that the human characters don't mean anything and we should just get rid of them entirely. So I feel like the giant monster fights were really strong and that's definitely the best part of this movie. But I also feel that the human characters didn't reflect the themes of the movie as strongly as they could have. The characters just weren't that interesting to follow and there wasn't a lot of investment in whether or not they survived or what they did or, you know. The the whole climax of the movie is interspersed with this running around Boston looking for another lost kid. And it's it's so contrived. And at that point, that's where it really started dragging. I was like, oh, just get back to the monsters already. Yeah, pretty much. But that's really the main part where it felt bad. The rest of it makes for an effective framing device. And that's really what they're there for. And the movie knows it. They're a framing device. In terms of the movie and in terms of my experience with um, Kaiju, 
how this film compares to previous entries in the Godzilla franchise I've seen, I think it compares favorably. I don't feel it's as good as Shin Godzilla, which is a really, really, really good film. And I'm not usually one to praise the work of Hideaki Anno. I'm not a massive fan of his work, but Shin Godzilla is amazing. There are very few things that compare to Shin Godzilla. Yeah, that's true. It is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful piece of work. It might even be Hideaki Anno's magnum opus, arguably. Yeah, you can make that argument. I'm not going to argue against it, at least. I wouldn't even say Neon Genesis Evangelion is anywhere close to even being his magnum opus when you compare it to Shin Godzilla. I mean, of course, the two aren't really comparable because they're two different mediums. One's an anime, obviously, and one's a kaiju film. But um, Shin Godzilla is one of those movies that I feel I can watch over and over and over and over again, to be perfectly honest. So Godzilla King of Monsters. I feel in terms of the characters... The um, plot with the broken up family and so on and so forth, I felt that felt like a little bit contrived. I felt it felt kind of out of place. I felt like the human characters that the film should have focused on were the monarch operatives. I found them to be much, much more compelling characters than the human family. The kaiju fights were nothing short of incredible. Where do I even begin, to be perfectly honest? They're spectacular in the classic sense of the word of being a spectacle that you just can sit there and watch for ages. <laughs> Absolutely. And not just that, the way in which the fights are shot and framed, it's like they almost have their own narrative as well. Like, for example, the symbiosis between Godzilla and Mothra. Obviously, there's more to that than meets the eye. Sorry, Transformers reference there. Rodan's antagonistic nature. Um, if you go back and watch the Japanese Godzilla Kaiju films, that also hints at more depth there as well. I just feel like aesthetically, they are absolutely wonderful. Unfortunately, I saw the film in 2D, but I do want to go back and watch it again in IMAX 3D when I get the chance. I saw it in IMAX, but I saw it in IMAX 2D because 3D consistently gives me migraines. And it was honestly just with the wider screen and the better sound system alone, it was so cool. <laughs> So in terms of um, characters, do you have a particular favorite? Um, who do you feel was the best written character? Well, see, here's the thing is that obviously we're meant to empathize with the family because you've got the two different viewpoints of humanity on either side. And we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, how you've got one side that's like uh, nature is dangerous and it's destructive and we need to like exert control over it to protect ourselves. And then you have the one side that's like humanity is awful and we need to just go away and go extinct. And those two sides are embodied by the two main characters, the two scientists who used to be married and then broke apart that form like the core focus of the film's human plot. Mm -hmm. So there is a clear idea that they should have been the ones to express the thematic points of the movie, that their development and how they interact with the other characters and with Godzilla should form the backbone of how we view this theme. And unfortunately, they don't really do anything with either of those characters other than have them, you know, make speeches and do stuff. And there's not any chance for us to get a good idea of what their personality is like on a good day, not when Godzilla is wrecking the place. Yes. So the one character where we do get a very clear idea of his personality is I can't and I can't think of anybody's names except for Sarazawa. I am very sorry. The science dude with Monarch with the white hair and the glasses and the coffee mug. Sarazawa is played by Ken Watanabe. He big dope. So Sarazawa is really good, but that one scientist dude. And also the like clearly very like nerdy tech dude. Um yeah. with, like the white shirt and the tie and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Both of those characters 
are really fun to watch because their personalities are instantly recognizable. We know everything about what they are just by looking at what their design is visually and just like from their general dialogue. One of them is this sort of dweeby techish dude who's really out of his element here. The the white haired scientist dude is basically every single toku nerd watching this movie with his comments. <laughs> the sarcasm and just like, I don't want to say glee at watching the monster fights, but he's clearly having a little bit too much fun. You're referring to Sarah Zawa, is that correct? No, no, not Sarah Zawa, the other dude. Oh, him, yeah, 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 yeah. No, Sarah Zawa is really cool, and I'll talk about, we'll talk about him I like later, him. because his character arc sort of forms what is, in the movie, what is the most emotionally weighty arc of the film, but also what the film should have focused on. Absolutely. Um, Sarah Zara is in the 2014 movie, I do believe. Yes, he is. Yeah, he, that's where the famous gift let them fight comes from. But um, have you seen Pacific Rim? I have seen Pacific Rim. The one thing I love about Pacific Rim, and you'll notice the main problem I have with talking about this movie is I can't remember anybody's names. And I can't remember most people's names in Pacific Rim either. <laughs> But I can talk about the characters because they adhere to those very broad strokes that define their archetype. So they're instantly recognizable and we have a good feel for what they're like, even if we only see them on screen a few times and if they only have like three lines of dialogue. There's maybe two or three characters in King of the Monsters that get that treatment. So those are the ones that I instantly think of first, even if I can't remember their names. I don't want to say it needed more like that because then that kind of turned this into a really more hokey film. Mm. But the other characters that were already present needed a little bit more of those broad strokes. So that's my take. What did you think, Ash? In terms of the characters, as I said before, I felt like the film should have focused on the monarch scientists as opposed Mm -hmm. to the family. Obviously, you had the two opposing ideologies from the paleobiologist mother and from the father as well. Yeah, and he's a scientist too, but they never really talk about what he was involved in other than he used to work for Monarch. Yeah, pretty much. In terms of the mother's ideology that the kaiju should be able to run rampant and that all they do is just bring regeneration, that the destruction that they cause and that the loss of human life is but a simple price to pay for the earth continuing on. I don't agree with that ideology whatsoever. That's one extreme. And then you've got the father who believes that the monsters should be controlled. We should kill them all and that they're abominations, which also I don't agree with. So I guess they're a good framing device to an extent. However, as you said, I believe that they're underutilized and they never really go anywhere with that plot thread. And it doesn't really give much emotional weight. Whereas the developments with Monarch, their characters, specifically Serizawa's character arc and his eventual sacrifice bring much more emotional weight like Sarah Zyra's sacrifice actually made me a little bit upset yeah no like I was tearing up in the theater watching that and like I was mentally making fun of him the entire time because I'm like this character is just on screen to make bad philosophical monologues and then he actually goes and sacrifices himself to save Godzilla and in that moment like I actually started tearing up I was really really sad and I didn't expect it Yeah, I honestly, honestly didn't expect it either. But it was the only way that they could have saved Godzilla. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they do a good job of explaining why it was necessary. So it doesn't come off as the movie trying to pull a sacrifice in order to make a tearjerker. Like there's a very clear reason why he needed to do that. Of course, of course. Also, another point I want to bring up is about the eco-terrorists. They kind of don't really do anything in the second half of the movie, do they? They're just like, well, everybody's woken up. We're screwed. Bye. <laughs> 
Yeah, pretty much. I just wanted to bring up the fact that the Monarch had a kaiju stored in their facility in, was it Antarctica? Yeah, it was Antarctica. That was that was Monster Zero. Yeah, Flora. Monster Zero. Monster Zero, there was no record of him um, amongst the other Titans. So they must have surely known that he was of extraterrestrial origin. Why on God's green fucking earth would you purposely awaken a three-headed space dragon that could bring about the end of the earth? What the fuck, man? Like, what the actual fuck? Even though I love King Ghidorah and he's my homie, but still... And that's and that's also another problem I have with the film's progression is like all the exposition is delivered through, oh, we found this ancient text that has this explanation of where this monster came from. And obviously this text is 100% intact and we've translated it accurately. And of course it must be right because it's old. And I mean, I'm not going to complain because every Godzilla movie does this. It's it's a hallmark of kaiju stuff where the, the secrets to understanding the present come from the ancient past. So I, I get the sense that they actually didn't know what Ghidorah was before they woke it up. They just thought it was another Titan. And they even state, I think at one point, very early on in the movie, when they realized that that base has been taken over, they're like, oh yeah, we just recently found this one and we don't know what it is yet because there's no record of it. And then it's not until after it's woken up that they bring up all these manuscripts and documents and cave paintings and stuff that say, oh, Ghidorah was a monster that fell from the heavens <laughs> in the ancient past. So of course it must be an alien. So I get the sense that they didn't actually know it was an alien until it woke up and they started looking back and went, oh, shit. <laughs> they should have done. I mean, like, if you go back through the uh, Japanese Ghidorah mythology, mm -hmm. you'll see that Ghidorah obviously has his origins in space. And there are plot points where his origins are tied up with the um, Exosagian, the Exilians. I don't know if you've heard about that. No, I haven't. I'm not that familiar with Ghidorah's stuff. Yeah. So um, if you go back and watch some of the other movies in which King Ghidorah features prominently, you'll see that he has quite an interesting origin story. And there's a reason as to why he's my favorite kaiju of all time. Well, either him or Death Ghidorah from Rebirth of Mothra, but that's a different discussion for a different episode. I mean, Ghidorah is always a bad guy, but sometimes it's really fun to root for the bad guy, especially like anytime Ghidorah shows up in another monster movie like unless there's like eight other monsters that are beating the crap out of him like in the um destroy all monsters movie G Ghidorah's just a really cool monster um, it, i don't we were talking about this before we recorded but our listeners may remember a video game from the early 2000s called godzilla destroy all monsters melee for the gamecube oh yeah and I didn't own it, but a friend of mine in the neighborhood did, and he brought it over one summer, and we played that for like four hours. And I always played Ghidorah, or sometimes Mecha Ghidorah, because that was in there too. Oh, yeah. He's so cool. He's a three-headed golden dragon that spits lightning. It's really awesome. It is pretty awesome. And they do a really good job of conveying that here. The other thing I really liked about how they did Ghidorah, and honestly, the fact of making him explicitly an alien creature, I was really happy at, because I didn't know how far they were going to take sort of the established setting if we were going to bring in all the alien and outer space stuff with the setting. And then they did with Ghidorah. So that opens up the possibility for other aliens or monsters to come from space in the future, which I thought was really cool. The other thing I liked about Ghidorah, and this is one thing a lot of people picked up on in the movie, mm. they do a really good job of giving him personality between the three different heads. <laughs> and you don't notice it at first. But the left head is kind of stupid. <laughs> yeah, you eventually notice it because the right head like, kind of scolds him a bit. Yeah, it snaps at him. Yeah. 
And um, this happens sometimes in nature. Like you see snakes or lizards or reptiles uncommonly are born with two heads sometimes. And since you've got two different brains that are controlling the same body, they'll fight over different things like who gets to eat food and which direction they get to go and stuff. So it was cool to see them incorporate that into how Ghidorah acted. And it made him a really memorable character. And you mentioned that earlier when we were talking about our impressions, how much personality they gave the monsters. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, it's almost as if the Kai fights themselves have their own distinct narrative separate from the movie's narrative oh yeah and i really really enjoyed that and that is a really excellent part of this movie and it's something that good kaiju movies should do in general because everybody talks about like oh we don't need the human characters just give us two hours of monsters fighting and that is really tough to do if you don't develop a personality like this. Like, there's a couple different ways you can play Godzilla. And over the relatively short time I've been seeing Godzilla movies, there's two main tropes that kaiju movies take, especially if we're dealing with Godzilla. The first one is Godzilla represents natural disaster, inevitable crushing destruction that humanity can only sit back and watch and learn how to cope with. Mm-hmm. So like Shin Godzilla. Yep, 100%. And in a movie like that, you cannot make the focus entirely around monster destruction. You have to have a human framing device to show how humanity comprehends that disaster. On the other hand, what King of the Monsters does is Godzilla is a superhero. Godzilla is Ultraman. (laughs) To an extent, but I would still say um, in terms of alignment, he's probably still like a true neutral or something. I'm over-exaggerating. Godzilla is definitely not good or nice in this movie. He's a hero, but he's a hero with what one would call a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. He's barely tolerant of humanity, like barely tolerant of humanity. Yeah, like the, the most acknowledgement we get from him is him deciding not to attack us. Pretty much. I mean, that's essentially his fist bump. Like, hey, I'm not going to kill you today. Yeah. But in a movie like that, you can afford to put the human characters more on the back burner because the monsters themselves have their own motivations and personality that drive the plot. And that that's exactly what made this movie really fun to watch is you got to see that unfold in all the action scenes. It's neat because that also ties back to the explicit main theme of the movie in that humanity is an active participant in nature. So uh, the big... Um, epiphany for the male main character, the dad, science dad. I'm just going to call him science dad from now on. That is a very, very good name for him. The epiphany for science dad is realizing that the monsters aren't just mindless forces of destruction, but actually do have their own motivations and personalities. In other words, the monarch team and science dad come to understand And this is what Sarazawa knew all along. Come to understand that we have more in common with the kaiju of Earth than we would think otherwise. And that's what we need to focus on to build that connection between us and nature. So that's the main epiphany and the turning point of the movie. And again, the movie does a really good job of showing that personality. 100%. Um, What I was also going to mention is that we Mm -hmm. have neglected to mention Mothra and her character arc. Yay, I'm glad everybody loves Mothra now. Everybody loves Mothra. She is very, very different to how she was in like the Heisei era Godzilla films because she was a lot softer and nicer. Yeah, Mothra definitely does not stab other monsters in the older movies. Well, yeah, there's that. (laughs) My goodness. That's so cool. (laughs) I don't think I ever remember her having a tail stinger. Maybe she did. Maybe I'm forgetting. No, she doesn't. I was reading some notes from the designers and they said they explicitly added that as a new thing for this movie. 
like I saw a meme. I think it was on Twitter that had like Heisei Mothra as like soft and wonderful, has puppies. <laughs> and then this era Mothra, I guess Rewa era Mothra, as a divorced mum of three who beheaded all of her ex-husbands. <laughs> I like that. I'll send you the meme later. It was hilarious. But yeah, so I know I haven't spoken much about the plot. I, I'm sorry for dominating this conversation. <laughs> no, it's not even that you've dominated the conversation. It's just that I mostly found the plot to be forgettable, so I don't really want to speak on it. But what really left an impression on me was how visually captivating the kaiju fights were, especially mm -hmm. the final kaiju fight between Godzilla and King Ghidorah and Rodan and Mothra. And um, when Godzilla gets his like little mode change power up, he becomes Godzilla burning. Oh, I know, Godzilla burning brave. <laughs> Emibius. But yeah, he gets his power up and it takes that for him to defeat King Ghidorah. Oh, and even then when they do a fake out after the giant explosion that levels Boston and everything. Oh, yeah. And you see this pile of rubble and then it starts moving and then you see Ghidorah's head pop out. And my first thought was, oh, shit, he's still not dead. And then it turns out it's just Godzilla with his head in his mouth. But Yeah, and then you see Godzilla um, do his breath ray through it. Godzilla needing to utilize Mothra's energy in order to defeat King Ghidorah is also a nice reference to King Ghidorah's extraterrestrial alien nature and his strength. The level of strength that he has is something that the Titans are yet to encounter. Well, obviously Godzilla has throughout history. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I found that quite intriguing that his level of strength is something that the Earth is like completely and utterly unused to. Yeah, and that's really why he comes to dominate the other Titans is just the fact that he is the strongest and they recognize that. And when Godzilla beats him, they recognize Godzilla as the king because he beats And again, like this is something that the movie could have more explicitly built on with the human characters is the realization that we shouldn't try to exterminate the monsters because we're never going to be as strong as them. It's completely impossible for us to be able to kill all of them. There's always going to be something stronger than us out there. So in order for humanity to survive, we need to make other monsters that are not completely evil space aliens stronger with our help. And so that's why they choose to help Godzilla at the end of the movie. That's something they should have built up more explicitly. But again, the human characters are just so bland. And the points when they do get to philosophizing are just so cookie cutter that it doesn't really work that well. Yeah. The themes in this movie could have been a lot stronger than what they were. The movie definitely, definitely, definitely is very weak thematically. Mm-hmm. But I feel that like aesthetically and in terms of how visually stunning it is, that kind of makes up for it somewhat. Absolutely. I would I would wholeheartedly recommend this movie for anybody to watch on the strength of its visuals alone. What I will say is that if you are going to go and watch it, please go and watch it in 3D. I mean, I saw it in 2D, unfortunately, and I really wished I'd gone and seen it in 3D because I definitely would have enjoyed like King Ghidorah's head just coming out of the screen at me. I'm going to differ on that. I don't like 3D movies that much. I think they're kind of an overpriced scam. That being said, I did see it in IMAX and IMAX made it look really awesome. And the other benefit of seeing it in IMAX is you get the improved sound system and hearing the monster roars like vibrate through your seat is incredible. <laughs> is that with like the circular screen? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit curved. Yeah. And it's just it's bigger in general. So you get more of it uh, filling your field of vision. I've got an IMAX cinema like little over a mile away from me. Mm -hmm. um, so I might go and see it again in IMAX 3D, possibly, if I get the chance. I might just go by myself, a little bit of self-care. 
Oh, I drove by myself for an hour to go see it in IMAX. <laughs> you drove by yourself for an hour? Yeah. Oh, so you went and saw it by yourself? Yeah. I mean, welcome to America. You have to, I mean, especially where I live, you have to drive quite a distance to get to anywhere. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I live just outside central London, so there's that. I can just jump on the subway um, and be somewhere. Yeah. I live two hours outside of Washington, D.C., and I still, this is still considered an urban area. Yikes. Is that like Charleston or something like that? No. Oh, no. I'm going to have to give you West Virginia geography lessons here. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really that familiar with the United States outside of New York and California. And even for people who live within the United States, nobody knows what my state is like because nobody comes here. So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. So just some final thoughts about the movie. Um, It's an absolute shame that it's bombing so hard because... Legendary has already filmed uh, Godzilla vs. Kong, and I don't know how much they're going to try and re-edit or reshoot it in response to this. Honestly, they shouldn't touch it because King of the Monsters was a really good direction for this franchise, and I don't want to see them screw it up. But I, I don't think we're going to get any more movies after Godzilla vs. Kong, unless Godzilla vs. Kong turns out to be like absolute gangbusters. It's just... It's a shame because King of the Monsters is the best Western kaiju film we have ever gotten outside of Pacific Rim, which doesn't hardly count. I would say that Pacific Rim counts as a kaiju film. My final assessment of the movie is that absolutely spectacular slaptastic visuals and kaiju fights with their own narratives basically save it from an overarching plot that is poorly written and is thin on the ground. I just feel like there's so much that we haven't talked about yet, but it feels like we've been talking for it already for an hour. Just there's so much detail. And let me let me summarize it this way. The people who made this movie really, really love giant monsters. Oh, yeah, 100%. And wanted to bring the best giant monster kaiju experience to Western audiences that they could. And that's why I'm so disappointed that it's not doing well is because I want this series and i want this genre to be more popular in the united states than what it is it's made back its budget though right well i mean like the way movies are marketed and the way they report financials it's almost impossible for a movie to genuinely lose money okay 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 fair enough yeah yeah it, there's there's tax breaks and stuff all involved with that oh, okay that makes sense it. yeah but one would imagine that movies only consider successful if it makes a certain amount over its budget Right. And because then that would justify the marketing force put behind it and what they would have to do to market it after it goes off screen and goes to DVD, DVD or rentals. One thing I will say is that I sincerely hope King of Monsters at least gets some sort of award season recognition in terms of his visuals because it genuinely, be genuinely does not, deserve it. Yeah, I will be shocked if this does not go up for best visual effects for the Academy Awards. I would be I wouldn't be shocked, I'd be devastated to be perfectly honest because it really does deserve that recognition. Yeah, although asking the Academy Awards to do anything correctly these days is too much. Well, yeah, Green Book won best picture last year, so there's that. <laughs> oh they're boy. Guaranteed to piss off everybody and <laughs> they did it. <laughs> yep. White savior narratives, boy. Yeah. So on that note, Pre, where can we find you on social media? Uh, Sunglass Pre on Twitter, as usual. You can also find my blog at Capes and Cool Scars. And uh, if you want, you can probably check out the link to my review of King of the Monsters, which goes a little bit more in depth into some of my initial opinions, if you want to check that out as well. Um, I also talk about Ultraman, comic books, anime, basically anything I want there. So if you want to hear more of my ramblings, if you haven't heard enough already, then please be sure to check that out. 
go and check out her ramblings. They are amazing. So you can find me on social media on Twitter and Instagram at the macabre chap. You can find Buildcasters on Twitter at Buildcasters. You can find this podcast on Twitter, Radio Cosen at Radio Cosen. That's R A D I O K O S E N. And you can find our Legion brethren at Twitter at Legion of Boom. That's L E G one zero N of Boom. And you can find my Buildcasters co-host Sentai5 on Twitter at Sentai5. So on that note, Radio Co-Sent out. This is an episode zero. This is just a preview because we really, really, really wanted to talk about Godzilla King of Monsters. On our first episode, we will be reviewing Ultraman. Which Ultraman series? Yet, we don't know. And on that note, Radio Co-Sent out. Say bye, Pri. Bye. See you later. This episode of Radio Corsen was produced by the Macabre Chap and Sunglass Pre, with music provided by Jenga. Battle, Battle ended. ended. Battle ended.